You're listening to Soundbite, the podcast that's food for your ears. I'm Celine Roberts. My dear lords and ladies and gender nonconforming folks, today we hop into a time machine and travel back to the Middle Ages to explore the feasts of yore. Authors Trisha Cohen and Lisa Graves are two best friends with a passion for history and cooking. They combine their superpowers to produce A Time and Place, a cookbook that brings medieval history and recipes to the modern table. Here's Cohen and Graves sitting down with me to talk about lobster and vinegar, the rolling of a giant cheese wheel, and the lore behind it all. My name's Trisha Cohen, and we wrote a book called A Time and Place. I'm Lisa Graves, and I co-wrote the book and illustrated it. How did you all become interested in medieval recipes? Well, I write history books. I have about 12 books published. Most are children's history books. And Trisha is a fantastic chef, and I visit her at her house in Cape Cod every summer, and we just started collaborating on ideas, and the medieval period was my favorite period. So we just decided to combine our superpowers, and she cooked, and I illustrated and wrote the history. Mm -hmm. You two told me that you've been friends since the ninth grade. Yes. Yes. We lost. <laughs> Clearly, we're still in ninth grade. Yeah, we, we act like ninth graders. Uh, okay. So we lost touch with each other probably uh, for about 20 years. Life happened. We got married, just moved on. And then through the power of Facebook, we found each other. And I was like, why did I ever lose touch with her? And uh, that was... The beginning. That was the beginning. Six and a half years ago. And I just happened to be on my way to New York to meet with the publisher for a previous book I'd done. And I met with the publisher. I said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this medieval cookbook. And the publisher was like, I want to do that. Let's do it. Write me a pitch. So I call her up, and I'm like, "Um, you're going to have to cook some medieval recipes. (laughs) They've already already got us on the next book. We're going to do colonial cooking. Let's talk about recipes. The layout of your book Mm -hmm. is done by festival dates. It is, Mm -hmm. yes. And if you could, could you define the period we're talking about? I was actually a little surprised when I read your foreword that it covered as much time as it did. Yeah, well, it was, you know, the high Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, it's all very confusing. And where you look, it might define it slightly different. So we kind of focused from 1400s to, and we tap just a little bit into the 1700s, which really isn't medieval, but... um, We have a few ingredients that were brought in from the 1700s, so we explain that in the book about, like, Drambuie didn't come about until the 1700s from the Bonnie Prince Charlie. He was, he used it as a a medicine, and he made his own tonic, and when he lost the Battle of Culloden and escaped by boat dressed as a woman to the Isle of Skye, he um, thanked the clansmen that hid him from the English and gave them the recipe for his tonic, which turned out to be Drambuie. So it's kind of a very cool story. There's a lot of interesting, quirky stories throughout that. Like today, we were talking about Athel Bros. is a Scottish recipe that we put in there for the St. Andrew's Day feast. and Which is tomorrow. Which is tomorrow. That recipe was originally a drink. We turned it into a dessert, but it was a, a drink made with whiskey. And it had milk, so it was like Bailey's. The legend is, is that the first Earl of Athel in 1475 filled the well from a Highlander rebellion so they all drank from this well. He filled it with Athel Bros. So they all got tipsy and they were easy to capture. Right. So it, there's a lot of fun, quirky stories that you find out about the food as you're doing all the history research. Like Wee Matilda and her <laughs> Pig Face. Pig Face Day. Yeah. There's actually a feast called Pig Face Day. 
What does that celebrate? <laughs> you would think it would celebrate someone very unfortunate looking, <laughs> right. but no. Matilda was the first queen, or the only queen, I think, yeah, yeah, to commission a church. What she did was she fell in love with this Lord Brittick, and he didn't return the affection, so she had him thrown in a dungeon, and he died. So out of guilt, she commissioned a church in his hometown, and they celebrated the, the completion of the church with a hogshead. So to this day, that town, Evening, they um, still celebrate Pig Face Day, and they celebrate all things pork-related. So, I mean, there's so many funny, interesting stories that it's just not a boring history lesson you're getting behind each feast. It's funny stuff, like really entertaining, interesting. Some of it's a little sad. But some <laughs> right. <laughs> some, some of it's dark, yeah. but uh, it's very fun. What would the table and the kitchen have looked like in the Middle Ages? Well, the table was, people seemed to think it was someone chomping into a turkey leg and wiping their mouth on their sleeve, but it was actually very formal. Their feasts were very formal. They ate off plates that were sometimes made of bread called trenchers. If you were more on the, of a peasant, you know, not as wealthy, you were eating sometimes right off the table. They didn't have plates, but the more elaborate feasts had very heavily decorated tables, fruits, vegetables, not so much vegetables, herbs, greens, decorations. But more interestingly, they had a gilded swan. Actually, to this day, you have to get permission from the queen to hunt or kill a swan. They would take all the feathers off, dip them in gold, put them back after they baked it, and would wrap marzipan around the base of the swan. I can imagine it looked beautiful, but it sounds really savage when you think about it. Right. <laughs> was that edible? Or? Yes, to some degree. It was mostly used for decoration, though. And they did the same thing with peacocks. They used it as a centerpiece. So this gilded swan or a peacock would be the centerpiece for a table. We didn't cook any peacock no. or swans no. in our book. <laughs> yeah, no peacocks were injured. No. <laughs> <laughs> for the ingredients, though, when we were creating this book, we looked at all the ingredients that were available during medieval times. However, some of those ingredients, we use them differently than they would have. For example, butter. Butter was made simply by pouring cream into a leather bag, fixed to a back of a workhorse, and a horse would run through the fields throughout the day and thump, 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 churn the butter. The bag would come back, they would remove the butter out, and then they would place it in the sun for a couple days to let the butter rot, in essence. But they were getting the nutrients from the sun, and they treated uh, colicky babies, um, extreme flatulence, <laughs> <laughs> any kind of stomach ailment. Butter was given to them for medicinal purposes. So clearly we used butter as an ingredient, uh, not for flatulence. Now, if you ate too much and got flatulence, that's not my fault, but yes. What would have been used for oil? A lot of lard, yeah, for sure. And lard, what I've learned over writing this book was that lard has gotten a bad rap. I think people think lard, they think heavily processed, um, all the bad fats that you're not supposed to consume. And actually lard is really pure. From a cooking standpoint, it's not a bad thing to eat, you know, obviously within reason. Like and it that, cooks yeah. super clean and at a high heat. So if you're cooking, let's say, um, pork rolls and you put them in lard, when you pull the pork rolls out, you're not finding that your stick, your fingers are greasy and there's grease everywhere and you get this. Um, there was when you cooked the goose. 
Yeah, but that was goose fat. Oh, my God. That was insane. I'd never cooked a goose before. And and to be honest with you, I don't know many people that have actually cooked a goose. I've adventurous. Right. And I found that uh, Fresh Market in Pittsburgh had a goose. So I was like, well, I'm I'm going to cook a goose. And I'm like, all right, I, I can do this. I've cooked duck before. I've cooked chicken, turkey. You know, how, how hard can cooking a goose be? Yeah. So I I never realized how much fat is in a goose. It made a mess. Very little amount of meat that actually came from it. I can't tell you the meat itself was something that I really enjoyed. But wow, did it make one heck of a goose fat, as well as the gravy was insanely good. But when cooking a goose, you have to, you can't leave. You have to constantly remove the fat out of the pan or the fat just overdoes the pan. It's crazy. Uh, So if you're looking to go have a glass of wine with the neighbor while you're cooking goose, don't. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) What were the tools that they would have used? They used a lot of um, open fire, open flames. There was kettles but not like what you would see here, more like pottery kettles. And really, they're cooking vessels, and for most of the dishes that you see are an inedible pastry shell. And a lot of times they cooked within the inedible pastry shell. It was a pudding. It was basically what they considered to be a pudding. Everything was encased in something to cook it. Inside it would be all suet and, you know, innards and herbs. Tasty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not my favorite <laughs> suet. Um, but they cooked it all in this pastry shell to really bake it evenly. And we did try it. We yeah. have a, a recipe for one that's pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, they Are you talking about everything. plow pudding? Plow pudding, yes. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Yeah, that. What's in plow pudding? I had never made a traditional English pudding before. And how you basically buy a pudding container. I bought it on Amazon. You actually steam it in hot water for three, four hours. And so you put the material, whatever ingredients you want, within this pudding container, which usually is um, high sides with a little bit of a slant to them. And you put all your ingredients inside, and then you put some plastic wrap and then a little bit of aluminum foil on the top, and you tie it tight. Uh, then you just sit there for four hours and continue to fill <laughs> hot water into this container as it cooks on the stovetop. When I was done, I was like, I don't think this is going to be good. And I didn't even think it was uh, going to be done. I flipped it over. And I think I ate that thing within like a day and a half by myself. I don't I don't believe I shared it. It was that good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was then, so with each recipe, um, I probably should back up and tell you that um, a lot of these recipes were inspired from recipes from the 1400s. There was a cookbook called A Form of Curry, and it's F-O-R-M-E of C-U-R-Y. doesn't mean the spice. It actually talks about the art of cooking. And Richard II, in his big kitchens, had a ton of chefs, and they had these scribes writing down the recipes that these chefs were doing. And that actually is the original cookbook for Richard II. And so I took a lot of those recipes and used them as inspiration. Uh, some people um, have already taken stabs at them. So I looked at their recipes and you know made changes to them or found much more modern tastes that were <laughs> better. 
um, oh. and made those adjustments. So plow putting was one of them. Uh, yeah. and plow putting is actually a really interesting feast. It, it's almost like April Fool's Day kind of a thing. Um, it was the Monday after Twelfth Night or Epiphany, and it meant that holidays were over. They had to they had to go back to work. They had to start working the fields. They had to pl prepare for the plantings and things like that. So they would, uh, on this particular day, they would decorate plows and walk through town and say, penny for the plow, penny for the plow. But then it got a little out of hand. They started dressing in costumes. They started playing pranks on people that wouldn't give them a penny. Um, so they would be plow tracks on your front lawn, basically, if you uh, didn't give them a penny. So it became a very out of hand celebration. So the church put the kibosh on it. Like it was just people were having way too much fun. There's lots of drinking. People are cross-dressing. Um, there was like reversal of roles, like master became the farmer and farmer became the master. It was it, very out of control <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. But um, you can't have that much fun in medieval times. They kind of put the right end to all the fun. Plow Monday really isn't celebrated anymore. I think a few towns over there. In might, England, yeah. right. But it's, it's kind of lost right. its appeal. The feast itself um, for the pudding was really something hearty. Um, because these were people that worked in the farms um, and they needed something hearty to start their day. Uh, so we have um, sausage, um, just bulk, loose sausage. We do have some sausage links. We have some uh, sage and brown apple. sugar and apple and this really hearty crust. Um, that is edible, unlike that. That is edible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, cook it away for a couple hours and it's, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. It's a good yeah. brunch meal. Do you find that most of the recipes are quite time consuming? A lot of the recipes were easy. They didn't take much time. There were some that were a little bit more detailed. So lasagna was around during medieval times. Who knew, right? So around the same time as a form of curry, there was a cookbook made in Italy as well. Same premise, you know, made by scribes. And lasagna and ravioli were in the medieval times. They just did not include tomatoes. So I stayed true to that. There were no tomatoes in the cookbook at all because tomatoes really weren't, as Lisa said earlier, eaten. We used beef short ribs for our lasagna. And beef short ribs were something that they used in medieval times. So we put that in our lasagna with a bechamel sauce. So that one did take a little bit, uh, but it's well worth it. It seems like from the list of holidays that you have written out in the book that there are some modern ones like St. Valentine's Day, and then there are some ones that I've certainly never heard of before. Yeah, well, I go right through the feasts. Twelfth night, we know as it's basically New Year's Eve. And as we mentioned, Plow Monday, there's also St. Bridget's Day. Valentine's Day, as everybody knows, is pretty much the same. April Fool's Day was celebrated in medieval times. That got a little out of hand. The church put the kibosh on that as well. Shrove Tuesday, which is basically Fat Tuesday. Um, and that was when you used up all your your fatty, indulgent ingredients before you had to fast for Easter. Then there's feasts like the Cooper's Hill Cheese Roll or St. Swithin's Day, Pig Face Day. Those kind of things were celebrated throughout the medieval calendar, mixed in with you know, Halloween and Christmas and, you know, some of the other things that you've heard of, like May Day. People have heard May Day mm -hmm. and St. George's. Christmas. Yep. So, yeah, it's a good mix of things you may have heard of and then things you haven't. The Cooper's Hill Cheese Roll, for instance, 
is still celebrated today where they just roll a giant wheel of cheese <laughs> down a hill and people travel from all over the world to chase the cheese down the hill. And it's become like an Olympic event. People get hurt. I think my sister would do that. I think she would too. Yeah, she likes cheese. Has anyone um, ever been crushed by the cheese wheel? I don't think by the cheese wheel, just by all the people that go to do this. <laughs> the cheese wheel just hums down the hill, so I don't think they can catch it. cheese wheel, and you get to keep it when you catch it. We came up with a recipe <laughs> for like a cheese soup, <laughs> but it's a, it's a very specific cheese. It's yeah. double... Gloucester. Yeah, double Gloucester. Which is a combination of Stilton and cheddar. So you don't get that kind of in-your-face taste of the Stilton. It's sort of uh, tempered by the cheddar. It's nice. Yeah, very yeah, nice. Real nice. That competition, I think it was the 1500s, 1400s, and it's still going on. It's like the running of the bulls. It is. Yeah, it's exactly. Exactly. the running of the cheese. It's the, running running, of the, it's cheese. the rolling of the cheese. <laughs> yeah. Chase that cheese. Chase it. <laughs> Don't get hurt. In doing the research for this, I have this image of the two of you in some grand library pouring over all of these texts. <laughs> that <laughs> image is false. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would have been nice, but no. No. We worked apart from each other for most of the book. We would get right. together and go over ideas and do tastings and things like that. But for the most part, she was either here in Pittsburgh or in Truro, Massachusetts, where I'm in Medway, Massachusetts, about two hours away from Truro. So it was a lot of phone conversations, a lot of long weekends, mm -hmm. things like that. Research was mostly done online and through the libraries, just town libraries, no grand, you know, Bodleian library. <laughs> For me, a lot of the cookbooks were available. So again, that form of curry was available. I bought it on Amazon for like $5. Um, and at first when I bought it, it was in Old English. I was like, I'm never going to figure this out. But as I continued to work through the form of curry, work through some other uh, old um, uh, similar books, I started to pick up certain things and how they were phrasing them and what certain words represented. Um, what I did find, looking at all these recipes, that there was no uh, there was ingredients and there was the cooking element, but there was never an amount. So sort of a little of this and a little of that. Um, so I would imagine that that recipe changed, the taste changed from event to event, to palace to palace, there really wasn't anything that was standardized. That's what I was going off of. Yeah, it really wasn't. Nothing was really standardized till uh, the 18th century, right. for the most part. We're finding the same issue now when we're writing our second book, Colonial Time, T-H-Y-M-E. They also did not use standardized measurements in colonial times. Again, here we go again, trying to just make taste make taste and a lot of a lot of testing a lot of winging it a lot of winging it my neighbors <laughs> eat a lot of food a lot yeah do you find that things are bland or were bland because no. of the spice trade no the spice trade had opened up so this opened up a whole new world and people it was a display of wealth if you had um you know, a, a wide array of different spices, and the spicier your food was, it just meant you were wealthier, you know. It was a show-off thing. So the, medieval food was not bland at all. It was actually heavily spiced and lots of herbs and... Right, you'll find ginger uh, is one of... So the top uh, spices would have been ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, white pepper. They actually had, uh, so you know, like garam marsala or uh, Chinese five spice. Those are mixtures. 
there are very defined mixtures in medieval cooking on certain spices. So they would take um, two parts cinnamon, one part nutmeg, um, one part ginger, and that would be one combination, where another one would be much more um, white pepper and maybe a splash of, of ginger. And these really had specific names and they were used in a lot of the medieval cooking and it wasn't as Lisa had said wasn't used to mask the taste it was a much more refined palate that had come through some of their trades and also really from some of the travels that that a lot of the monarchs were doing and they also ate a a wide range of game birds I mean everything they ate everything beaver yeah beaver threw it over the fire (laughs) It end up being pretty tough. Beaver oh, tail jerky. I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, God. Yeah. What sort of socioeconomic class of people would have been eating the food that's in your book? I think it's a good mix because the peasants would, and the workers, the farmers, they would eat plow pudding. For the most part, the book covers quite a range. I think it's a good balance of right the, what the wealthier uh, people would have eaten versus the peasants. Right. But the peasants ate more vegetables because. The nobles, if it grew in the dirt, it was it was considered peasant food. So, I feel like the nobles were dying of heart attacks at a fantastic rate. They had, they rate had black then. tea yeah. from, they from put, the wine. They put so much sugar in their wine that actually black teeth was a status symbol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was the other thing uh, through my research: how much wine they used in the cooking, um, and honey they used. So the yeah, honey was, was sweetener. the sweetener. The wine gave it depth. So as I'm going through these trial and errors and changing and manipulating some of these recipes, um, I was walking through the liquor store, and instead of grabbing that big jug of burgundy for my next you know, cooking experiment, just on a whim, I just grabbed a bottle of mead. Which like, is just fermented honey. Right. And it's actually the oldest beverage ever. I believe they've tracked it back to 6500 B.C. in northern China. They found remnants of it in pottery. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to swap out some of this wine for mead. And I loved it. I think the mead gave an interesting depth. Um, It gave a sweetness without being too sweet. Um, So when they called, uh, when some recipes called for white wine or sweet white wine, I swapped it out for mead and I really loved the results. Mm. And um, a few of our recipes, including uh, the um, crone scone, which is really a deconstructed pork pie. So if somebody wants to cook a recipe out of this book, it's likely they'll be able to find the ingredients. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. absolutely. Yes. There's actually nothing that they wouldn't be able to find at most grocery stores. Right. And I found everything at the local grocery store here. Um, a few trips to some specialty stores uh, in the area, but nothing crazy. Um, the only thing that had to be ordered was the pudding dish. Yeah, you're right. The pudding dish. Yeah. Amazon. All the ingredients I used would have reasonably been found in medieval times. There's a couple stretches, uh, like mascarpone, but it's safe to assume that they had cream-based products. Uh, so it's just a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, we took some liberties. Like I said before, the drambouille was didn't really come about until the 1700s, but we still included the history behind it. Would both of you share either a favorite recipe or maybe a favorite piece of history? that you've taken from the, the studies that culminated in this book? <laughs> uh, let's see, my favorite, re- I have so many favorite recipes in there. 
Um, I think my my favorite is the lobster and shrimp, beurre blanc. So yeah, in medieval times, they took just straight up vinegar and poured it on stuff. I'm sure they thought that was lovely. Um, I did not. Um, <laughs> so I decided to take a recipe for lobster and vinegar and... That sounds absolutely <laughs> awful. Yep. I it's tried not. it. I did try it because <laughs> I had to try it. Um, I was not a fan. So I then took that recipe and turned it into shrimp and lobster and uh, like a white wine and vinegar and butter sauce. I pretty much already told all my favorite history parts, like the Drambuie the uh, Wee Matilda's big pig out. Like, that story is fantastic. She, uh, she fell in love with someone, and he didn't like her back, so she threw him in jail. That's fantastic. I wish I could do that now. Vengeance makes for the best it food. It does. It yeah. tastes delicious. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. We really appreciate it. <laughs> I hate to end on that note. <laughs> really? I think that's the best note yeah. to end Vengeance on. is delicious. It's best served. <laughs> Warm. Warm. <laughs> With a bottle of wine. Or meat. <laughs> for more historical recipes, look for Trisha and Lisa's new book, Colonial Time, due out in November 2017. You can also check out their blog, timemachinecuisine.com, that's time, T-H-Y-M-E, to keep up with their week-to-week adventures. For more soundbite, visit our archives at www.pghcitypaper.com or subscribe to City Paper Podcasts on iTunes. Come along with me and rescue wasted food with 412 Food Rescue or explore the world of biodiversity with Simran Sethi. Soundbite will be taking an upcoming break this January, but you can look for us in February when we'll be back. Cook merrily and eat heartily. <laughs>